Well, good morning again. Would you bow with me once more as we enter God's word? Heavenly Father, we thank you once more for this, your word, that is living and active, and by the power of your Holy Spirit, it is, it is here for us, fresh and new today, as the day these words were first uttered. And so we ask, Lord, that you would open again the eyes of our heart, that we may see you, that our spirits may hear you, and that through this, Lord, you would encourage us, build us up, refine us, and send us out in your name. We pray in your name, amen. Now, I begin this morning with the fictional story, and I stress that it's a fictional story, of how one day at a busy airport, the passengers on a commercial airliner were seated waiting for their pilots to show up so that they could take off. Finally, the pilot and the co-pilot entered in the rear of the plane and began to walk up towards the cockpit through the center aisle. Shockingly, however, both pilot and co-pilot appeared to be blind. The pilot was using a white cane, tapping the aisle ahead of him, bumping into passengers left and right as he stumbled his way up the aisle. The co-pilot didn't look any better. He was using a seeing eye dog, and both were wearing dark sunglasses. Now, the passengers kind of chuckled nervously amongst themselves, assuming this must be some sort of a practical joke. Soon, the pilots entered the cockpit, the door closed, and after a few more minutes, all seemed well as the engines came to life and the airliner began taxiing towards the runway. However, when the plane suddenly swerved violently onto the runway, the passengers began to look at each other quite uneasily. Just then, the airliner started to accelerate rapidly, and people began to panic. Soon, some passengers began praying loudly as the plane got nearer and nearer towards the end of the runway, picking up speed the whole way. As the end of the runway approached, suddenly their voices became more and more hysterical, louder and louder, until finally, the airliner had less than 20 feet of runway left, and there was a sudden change in pitch as the voices of every passenger on the plane screamed at once. At that very last moment, with no runway left, the airliner suddenly lurched off the ground and up into the air. Meanwhile, up in the cockpit, the co-pilot let out a big sigh of relief. He said to the pilot, You know, one of these days, the passengers aren't going to scream, and we won't know when to take off. Now, I'll be honest, I I was a little hesitant to share this story this morning, especially seeing as Caden's flying for his very first time this Friday, and I thought, you know, I didn't want to mess with him too much, but I think you'll be fine, Caden. Just keep the the pitch, you know, to a manly yell, not, you know, the girly scream, Just, just throwing it out there. Now, this morning, as we think about blind pilots, of course, that seems ridiculous, and it is. But this morning, I want to talk with you about 2020 vision. Not 2020 vision of the physical variety that your eyes can see with when we go to the optometrist, but I want to talk to you, with you about 2020 vision spiritually, of how well the eyes of our heart can see, how well our soul can see. And the Lord Jesus used these types of terms quite often in his teaching and in his preaching. He once said of the spiritually blind Pharisees, 
You have eyes but do not see. On another occasion, he said to them, you're like the blind leading the blind, and both of you will fall into the ditch. Kind of like airline pilots, blind leading the blind. Now, along that same line of thinking, Helen Keller, one of the most famous blind people who's ever lived, she once made this observation in regards to physical sight and spiritual sight. Listen to what she said. What would be worse than being born blind? To have sight without vision. To have sight without vision. I recently read this in Paul David Tripp's book entitled Dangerous Calling. He wrote, When you are physically blind, you know that you are blind. And you do things to compensate for this significant physical deficit. But spiritually blind people are not only blind... They are blind to their own blindness. They are blind, but they think that they see quite well. Now, I don't think I need to tell you that, just like a blind airline pilot, to go through life spiritually blind is equally a recipe for disaster. So let me ask you this morning, how is your vision? How is your vision? As we look ahead at the year 2020, Is our spiritual vision 2020? Or are we just looking at things with earthly and physical eyes? Looking only at the physical and earthly needs that we have in life, our our earthly goals that we want to achieve. Is that all we're looking at? Or are we looking ahead with spiritual eyes? Focused on the spiritual things that will last. Focused on the mission that Christ gave us. Looking to expand the kingdom that will endure for eternity. Now, I would say that for most followers of Christ, myself included, there is most often a mix of those things happening in our lives. You know, we, we have to focus to some degree on our physical and spiritual, pardon me, physical uh, needs and goals. And we also want to focus on spiritual goals and needs as well. And so there's a mix of both. And this isn't entirely wrong. But one thing that we needs to be very mindful of, and this is what I want to propose to you this morning as a cautionary note. We must be mindful that our default setting, and this stems from our sinful flesh in Adam that all of us are born with, our default setting is that we will gravitate towards, if left unchecked, we will always gravitate towards focusing on our physical needs first. Our natural pull will be towards our physical and earthly vision over spiritual vision. That's our default setting. And so we need to always check up on where are we at? Where are we uh, spiritually? Have we gravitated towards that old default setting of only looking with earthly eyes at earthly things? Because sometimes this drift towards that happens without our attention. Remember, people who are spiritually blind are mostly blind to their own blindness. They think, oh, I'm doing quite fine, and yet are you really? And so it takes some introspection, it takes some soul-searching, and most importantly, it takes the light of the Holy Spirit to illuminate the eyes of our heart, to see where are we really. And so, as we do this this morning, one thing that is true for everyone, regardless of which vision you primarily use, whether it's physical or spiritual, one thing that is true for all is that either one of them 
has great power to control our attitudes and actions in the present. So, if our vision is primarily physical, we will primarily be focused on physical and earthly things. But if our vision is primarily spiritual, we will be primarily focused on spiritual and heavenly things. And so, if you're living your life by the physical, then your actions will reflect that. And you will pursue physical and earthly things that won't last. In one of his novels, George Moore tells of Irish peasants at the period of the Great Depression in the 1930s. Now, of course, the, the Irish at, at any time weren't in a very wealthy status. In fact, they're most famous for the, the Great Potato Famine, where many of them starved. And, and here they are in this time of great and dire need. And so the government comes up with a scheme to put as many of these people to work as possible building roads. And so these men were just happy to have a job, any job. And so with this hard labor, they began building roads. And the men at first worked well. They sang their songs as they built. They were happy to be working. But eventually, as time went by, they discovered that the roads they were building went nowhere. Soon the truth leaked out that this was just a make-work project. There was no actual tangible need for these roads whatsoever. There was no real destination. In fact, some of these roads ran out into dreary bogs and just stopped with dead ends. They didn't even go to a destination. And as the truth gradually dawned and sunk in, these men, who had been put to work by the government simply as an excuse to feed them, began to grow listless, and soon their songs stopped as they worked. And the author made this perceptive comment. The roads to nowhere are difficult to build. The roads to nowhere are difficult to build. For a man to work well and to sing as he's along the road, there must be a goal in sight, something real, something to aim for, something to achieve, that it has a purpose. And we all know that, don't we? You know, our, our days tend to drag along in a dreary and drab way with each task seeming mundane and boring if we don't have some grander vision fueling them. If we don't have some purpose for why we do what we do day in, day out, those tasks soon just become so meaningless and insignificant that, that we, we just lose the joy and zest for living. And for many people, this is an accurate description of how, in fact, they live their lives. They put in their time at work, they punch the clock, then they're watching the clock the entire day, waiting for that next break to come, counting the hours down till the end of the day, and from there then they, they count down the days till the end of the week, living for Friday, right? That's a slogan, people do that. We live for Friday, we live for the weekend. And the actions of the work week hold no greater significance than that they pay the bills and hopefully help them reach their physical goals and meet their needs. In a similar way, even for the believer, the follower of Christ, this attitude can very easily carry over to matters of faith as well. Because if we live the life of faith with that same human and physical mindset, then the life of discipleship becomes a, a mundane chore with no real goal in sight. You know, why did we come to church here this morning? Uh, well, it's a duty. I guess I have to. I, I need to be here. I need to check that box. In the same way, serving in the church 
becomes a chore stemming from some obligation that I guess I, I need to do this if I'm a Christian. Even personal spiritual disciplines like reading the Bible, praying, and, and serving others with the love of Christ, these just become items that are checked off on the daily chore list or, worse yet, neglected entirely. If we don't have a greater vision, some end in sight that we're aiming towards, all of these things become insignificant and meaningless. The roads to nowhere truly are difficult to build. And for this reason, I believe that all of us need to take times where we stop and assess our spiritual vision. Stop and assess, assess our spiritual eyesight. What are we focused on? What are we living towards? Does the road that I'm on right now have a goal? Or is it just going to some bog somewhere? What am I living towards? How is your vision? Is your vision more spiritual or more physical? And do the actions of your life agree with your answer? We see this principle playing itself out quite powerfully in the life of a man named Saul, who we've already seen here this morning. Now, we of course know him better as the Apostle Paul. But before he became the Apostle Paul, his name was Saul. And even before Saul's encounter with the risen and glorified Christ on the road to Damascus, we can surmise by his actions and his own words that Saul's vision for the future was an earthly-minded vision. He, in his human thinking, believed that he could serve and please God by following the legalism of the Mosaic law. He even believed that in doing so, he could make himself pleasing and acceptable to God by following it zealously. And so we see that this vision, this earthly-minded vision, had a powerful hold on Saul, and it affected and influenced his actions. As a devout Pharisee, a Pharisee of the Pharisees, he called himself, Saul began to hear and to see this group of radicals who were known at that time as the way. And this new group, known as the way, was teaching that a person was saved not by the law of Moses, not by following them through those works, but by faith in Jesus Christ alone and by grace. And this was contrary to literally everything that Saul believed. And so, in his attempt to please God, he became extremely zealous and dedicated himself to hunting down and silencing these new members of the way of Christ. And Acts chapter 9 verse 1 describes Saul like this. Breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. Sounds like the kind of guy you want to hang out with on the weekend, right? Just like one of the guys. Breathing out murderous threats against the disciples. Yeah, Saul's not a nice guy. I'm sure even the other Pharisees probably kept a bit of a berth around him. He is hard-nosed to the extreme. Not the type of guy you want to hang out with on the weekend. And so here he is, this guy breathing out murderous threats, following through on them, uh, having people imprisoned, even being complicit in their deaths, as we see with Stephen when he's stoned to death. On the road to Damascus, going out, breathing more murderous threats, saying, I've scattered them to the cities around, now I'm going to chase them down like dogs and eliminate them. And so he's headed to Damascus with that single focus in his mind, and that light brighter than the sun shines down on him, blinding him then and there. And what's incredible is he was blinded physically. He was blinded physically so that his eyes could be opened spiritually. 
The Lord loves working in these great ironies. Paul, Saul needed to be blinded physically so that his eyes could be opened spiritually. And that day he encountered the living and resurrected Christ, the one he didn't believe in, and yet he encountered him personally. And that Christ gave him an entirely new vision and a purpose for his life, one that was greater than himself, one that would last indeed for all of eternity. Now I trust you know the majority of how the rest of his story goes. His name was changed from Saul, which is king, to Paul, which means little one. And so by this new name, Paul, little one, he was expressing his newfound humility as the least of all of the apostles. And even though he took this name, little one, he embarked on a very big mission. And he began this perilous adventure that sent him trudging through the then-known world, through all the far-flung provinces of Asia and the Roman Empire, proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ, planting churches wherever he went. And he accounts through some of his journeys that he traveled through deserts and over mountains. He crossed storm-tossed seas. He was shipwrecked multiple times. He even traveled through blinding blizzards and blistering sun. He was held up by, by uh, robbers along the roads, he says. He says that he traveled constantly in peril of his own life. He was imprisoned more times than we can keep count of. He was flogged and whipped repeatedly. He was even stoned and left for dead on one occasion. And yet through all of this, and nearing the end of his life, he was able to say, I have fought the good fight. I have kept the faith. I have finished the course. Now, was this all done by Paul's own power and stamina? No, not at all. He was always quick to point out that it was the grace and power of God that worked so powerfully in his life, that his goal was in something far greater than what this world could offer. And he made this statement in Philippians 3, 13 and 14. And he says, Brothers, I do not consider myself as already having taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. My friends, the truth here is obvious to those who have eyes to see it. What drove Paul's life, what motivated those mundane daily actions was a vision far greater than some physical, earthly, temporary success. It wasn't some mansion or a state on a hilltop. It wasn't a tropical island somewhere that he could retire to. No, this vision was heaven itself. And this vision worked so powerfully in his life that he pressed on fighting this good fight of faith, no matter what hardships were thrown his way. And this focused him unlike any other person has focused, I believe, in the history of the world. And he had such a profound impact on this world that our Bible and our lives are all a ripple effect of the influence of how powerfully this vision worked in Paul's life, the inspiration that it gave him. And this vision was not a self-centered or self-given vision, It wasn't one for his own personal agenda or to make his name great that inspired him or motivated his actions. This vision that Paul had given to him by Christ himself was a Christ-centered, Christ-focused mission that was all about making Christ's name famous and proclaimed throughout the earth. 
this vision was given to him in two parts. The first that we already see is on the road to Damascus. And the Lord says to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And in this moment, Jesus showed him that this zealous, earthly, physical attempt to please God by persecuting his followers was so misguided, it was actually having the opposite effect of making himself displeasing to God. The very actions that Saul thought were pleasing to God were displeasing to him. His his own vision had so deceived him that earthly actions that he thought were good were actually bad. And we got to pause right there and ask that same question to ourselves. Can we be so deceived that actions that we think are pleasing to God can actually be displeasing? We see right here it's possible. And so we need to pause and, and reflect and ask the Lord, are there actions in my life that I may think are actually good, that yet the reason underneath them are displeasing to the Lord. These are things we need to ask the Lord to look at within our own hearts as the motives behind our actions are so powerful. Saul's motives were wrong. And so the Lord shows him on the road this was displeasing to him. And this revealed to Saul his own sinful condition, his incredible need for God's grace to cover all of this sin that he had that he had so blindly been been committing for so many years. And this is the starting point for each one of us. Not one of us can skip this step and try to be pleasing to God on our own human terms, with our own human effort. We need to see ourselves as Christ sees us, as sinners lost and displeasing to him in every possible way. And like Saul, we need to repent, throwing ourselves in humility upon God's grace and mercy and trust our lives to Christ. And the second part of this vision that Paul receives is later on in his life. And we read about it in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, our scripture reading for this morning, and you you can turn there with me if you like. And here in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul makes reference to an experience where God gave him an incredible vision of heaven. And here he speaks of himself in the third person, And we begin in verse 2 to read these words as he speaks of himself. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether it was in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know. God knows, was caught up to paradise. And he heard inexpressible things, things that man is not permitted to tell. And he then goes on in verse 7 to say that to keep him from becoming conceited because of this great vision of paradise, God allowed some sort of physical ailment, some thorn in the flesh, to be given to him to remind him of his own weakness and his need, his daily need for God's grace. And so Paul concludes by saying in verse 10 that this is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses and insults and hardships in persecutions, in difficulties, for when I am weak, then I am strong. Now, use your imagination to think of what Paul saw and experienced when he was caught up to the third heaven, that he caught a glimpse of paradise, that, that you know, some of us have maybe read or heard about these, uh, you know, near-death experiences where people catch a glimpse of heaven and come back and talk about it. And here, I... I, I have read some of them myself, and we always have to be a little bit skeptical because here, Paul literally says that his, his glimpse of heaven 
the things that he saw and the things that were revealed to him were so profound that he was not even permitted to talk about them. And I would suggest that even if he tried to talk about them, they would be so far beyond the use of the human language to convey just the depth and the richness of this experience that he had. And yet this, this vision that he had of paradise, of heaven, being caught up to see these things, obviously worked so powerfully in his life that this new spiritual vision overrode his physical vision, which was telling him that God's mission for him was too hard. Because his physical vision was seeing all of the persecution, the opposition, prison, hardship, right? That's physically what he was seeing and experiencing daily. And so he would have to have a vision so powerful that it would override all of that. To make all of that worth it, to say, you know what, I'm in prison for the 17th time. I'm in being flogged for the 38th time. I've shipwrecked for the 5th time. This is just enough. And he never said it was enough. Because the vision he had been given was so powerful that he's like, I will endure it all because what I'm moving towards is so much greater than even the worst that man and this life can throw at me. That is the incredible power of the vision of heaven. And Paul's desire was the same for the church. And he writes to the church in Ephesus in chapter 1, verse 18, our call to worship, his prayer for them, and I believe it's the Lord's prayer for us, his church today, is this. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened or opened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. This is spiritual vision Paul is talking about here. The eyes of our heart. He prays that they might be opened. That we would know what is the hope of our calling. The glorious riches of our inheritance with the saints. It's all coming my friends. And if we would just catch one glimpse of it. I believe for one millisecond. If we just saw it. It would change our lives right now like that. We would go out today with a new zip in our step. And say you know what. I'm going to live my life today a little bit differently than what I had planned. Less focused on myself, more focused on the Lord and the mission. So let me ask you again, how is your vision today? How is your vision? Are the eyes of your heart enlightened to see what to our earthly eyes seems impossible? The year was 1932. Mom and dad are at home, and there's little Jimmy playing on the floor after dinner. Mom and dad were absorbed with their jobs and didn't notice the the time had grown quite late. And it was a full moon. It was past little Jimmy's bedtime. And some of the light was beginning to seep from this full moon through the windows. Mom finally glanced up at the clock, noticed the late hour. Jimmy, it's past time to go to bed. Go up now, and I'll come up and tuck you in. Like usual, Jimmy went straight up to his room. His mom again lost track of time, and another hour or so passed, and his mother went up to check on him to make sure he was tucked in and fast asleep as he should be. But as she peeked in the bedroom door to her astonishment, she found that her son was just sitting there quietly, wide awake, staring out his window at the full moon. What are you doing, Jimmy? You should be asleep. I'm just looking at the moon, mommy. Well, it's past time to go to bed now. And as one reluctant boy settled down into bed, his mother tucked him in. 
he whispered these words, Mommy, one day I'm going to walk on the moon. (laughs) The mom replied, as all mothers do, to such pie-in-the-sky dreaming, That's nice, dear. Now go to sleep. (laughs) Who could have known that the boy in whom that dream was planted that night would survive a near-fatal motorbike crash which broke almost every bone in his body, He would make a remarkable recovery from that crash and many years later would bring to fruition this dream, 32 years past in fact, when James Irwin stepped on the surface of the moon, one of 12 representatives of the human race to have ever done so. A vision so big that it seems to our earthly eyes impossible and yet it drives us forward. So, as we enter 2020, like Paul, may we learn to see less with our physical eyes and more with the eyes of our heart. May we learn to look ahead and at the people all around us, not with our physical vision, but with our spiritual vision. Not with our physical eyes to see, oh, that person is proud or rich or poor or famous or not famous, but with the eyes of our heart to see that person and say, that person needs the Lord. They are spiritually blind. And maybe I can shine some light into their life today. And so may we learn to live not for this earth and the physical things that like that bog are just a dead end. They're not going to last. And may we learn to live for the heavenly glories of our inheritance in Christ, which, my friends, will not only last, but they will endure forever. Amen. Lord Jesus, we humble our hearts before you this morning. For we recognize that too often we have reverted back to that old default setting of looking at our lives and our goals and the people around us with our earthly vision, with our physical eyes and making earthly physical judgments about them and using our energy and and our attitudes and our actions accordingly. And so, Lord, I pray this morning, just by the power of your Holy Spirit and the light of your word, would you open the eyes of our heart just a little bit more this morning? Would you open our spirit so that we could just catch the smallest glimpse of the paradise that is waiting for us, of heavenly glories yet to be revealed, of the rich inheritance with the saints that is waiting for us, that will endure forever. And I pray, Lord, that with having the eyes of our heart open just that little bit more, that our actions would follow into the goals that you would set out for us, that our actions and our words would seek to usher others into your kingdom. And I pray, Lord, that as we do this and as we move forward and even as we experience hardships and perhaps even opposition or persecution, that like Paul, we would have a vision so grand that it would power us through all of it to say, yes, it is worth it, no matter what, because I am pressing on heavenward. And I pray, Lord, that this vision would work more powerfully in me and more powerfully in each one of the people present here today, 
in your church. For we will see you one, one day face to face, and this will all be worth it, and then some. And so, Lord, tune our eyes to see you, I pray in your name. Amen.